Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey Dave. Yeah Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cosy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. and welcome to the Games Master Team Championship. This is Under Consultation, an episode-by-episode podcast guide with the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, a fully paid-up member of the Gaming International Team Specialists. And my name is Ash Versus, and I'm just a git. (laughs) This episode aired on the 9th of December 1993, and for one final week, Meatloaf is top of the pops with I Would Do Anything For Love, and while Aladdin is the biggest weekend hit, Jean-Claude Van Damme is kicking up a storm at the top of the UK box office as a hard target. In the city of New Orleans, in a darker side of Dixie, away from the music and the lights, there's a new game in town. You'll be provided with a guide... Trackers and the weapons of your choice. I need to file a missing person report. The competitors are deadly. We pride ourselves in hunting only combat veterans, men who have the necessary skills to make our hunts more interesting. And they always win. You want to find your father? Get somebody who knows the city to show you around. Now, the opposition is about to get one last chance. What kind of a name is Chance? My mama took when. My friend, Mr. Boudreaux. Silver Star, Marine Force Recon. He's obviously not someone we should underestimate. an annoying little insect. And I want him stepped on hard. We need to get out of here now. Ladies first. What? You know what? I love Aladdin. I think we both covered it fairly well that we both really, really like Aladdin. I also really, really like Hard Target. I would not have seen it at this point. But Van Damme, questionable Bayou accents. <laughs> yep. Lance Henriksen. Always a winner. And Wilfred Skin Brimley. It's it's funny because Hard Target has been a bit of a it's been a bit of a mainstay on this podcast 
because whenever a Van Damme movie has come up, you've always said, I'm more of a fan of Hard Target because, you know, Wilfred Brimley. He did play some kind of like tough man roles during his film career. But in the 80s, Cocoon. Hmm. Cocoon the Return. <laughs> Basically, mostly family friendly kind of stuff. Ewoks. But no, because you've got Van Damme in a movie and Van Damme, Mr. Action, Mr. Martial Arts. You've got Lance Henriksen, who's just brilliant as Lance Henriksen, but also you wouldn't find out of place in a crime movie or an action movie. And then with one of the most amazing moustaches in Hollywood, you've got Wilford Brimley riding a horse so hard, I'd be amazed if the horse survived the shoot. Oh yeah, very much so. Maybe it's just me, but if I want to watch a Van Damme movie and I want one that's fun, Hard Target is probably one of the top contenders, definitely in the top too yeah because like double team i think has got a lot of really good stuff in there particularly the start particularly the end but like the middle section is it's interesting don't get me wrong but i don't think it is like it is an action movie in the same way that a lot of van damme action movies are i mean for me like if i'm gonna pick a fun van damme movie i'm always gonna pick street fighter like that i would say is like in my top sort of one or two van damme like fun van damme movies i'm going to pick because i've, I've got so much love for the film and i think one of the other main reasons i love it in addition to Van Damme, in addition to the Brimley. It's a John Woo joint. It's his first American feature. Boy, howdy, the studio did not trust him. They kind of basically, I believe, had a threat over him of, if you don't direct this properly, like if we catch wind that this isn't going the way we want it to, we will have someone else just take over. And then you're, you're fucked, basically. Yeah, but the studio were clearly quite, you know, they loved the fact that they had John Woo directing the movie. Obviously, I've, I had to collect all the adverts together for this podcast when I'm, you know, putting the, the ad breaks in the middle. And during one of the ad breaks I found from this time period is of Hard Target is coming to a cinema near you. And it is like, it's John Woo's Hard Target. It's John Woo and it's Jean-Claude Van Damme together at last. It's, you know, and it's, so the, the studio clearly were high on the fact that they had John Woo, but also at the same time, as you as you point out there, were cautious of the fact that they had John Woo directing a movie and for him not to balls it up. Well, the offer first came to Woo via uh, Tom Pollock, who was the president of Universal at the time. So there's the offer coming from the top. But then once he'd accepted it, Universal as a kind of studio... They got really cold feet because at this point we'd had hard-boiled, we'd had the killer, and I don't know if they just didn't realise what they were getting, but Universal changed their tune and they just, they didn't seem keen to have Wu direct an entire feature. And it was only basically after a prolonged campaign from James Jacks, who was the producer, that they kind of went, mm, okay. And their biggest concern apparently was having an Asian director on set who had a limited range of the English language. And mm. they hired Sam Raimi as a step-in. Sam Raimi oh, really? was, was hired to step in if they didn't feel Wu was going to fulfil his role and direct the film properly. Now, it may have backfired a bit because the thing is, Raimi, not known for being, you know, much of a studio guy, he was just fucking stoked to be working with yeah. John Wu. He was an absolute fan of his Hong Kong films and was also totally confident that Wu could do this, saying that Wu at 70% is still going to blow away most American action directors working at 100%. 
because you can't have more than 100%, can you, Luke? That's, That's impossible. No, no one can give more than 100%. By, by definition, that is the most anyone can give. Even John Woo? Mm. Maybe he is the anomaly that breaks the rule. Or maybe math is different for him. <laughs> yeah. Universal's kind of safety net wasn't really a safety net. And I also find it a very bizarre situation that they chose Raimi. Mm. There's a guy that's had a history of going uh, off the studio track a bit, even when he has worked with a studio or over budget or over time or quite often against the censors. So yeah. that's universal being universal. At the end of the day, clearly they liked what they got and they knew they could hang the name on it because, yeah, as you pointed out, it's all woo. It's, it's all over the shop. There were a number of scripts they did offer John Woo. This wasn't the only one. They also offered him an early draft for Face Off. Kind of, I suppose, makes sense because he does go on to direct that movie a few years later. Although clearly his tastes had changed by that point because apparently the sci-fi aspect, because at its heart, Face Off is a sci-fi movie. Mm -hmm. it, he was just like, no, no sci-fi, not doing it, not interested. I don't know if we get it in our timeline, but it, well, that is a fascinating little movie to dive into because... Like I've, I've spoken with one of the writers of that because he wrote some scripts for some video game movies. He wrote one of the drafts of Tomb Raider and he has got some stories to tell about Face Off because it is Travolta and Cage just showing up and being like, I mean, we could follow the script, I suppose, but why would we? And let's just go batch nuts and also John Woo's here. So let's just make this the biggest action movie we possibly can do. And I think it is all the better for it because Face Off is fucking terrific. I mean, other scripts they offered him was one that was kind of influenced by Alien. It was written by Chuck Farah. It got turned down, eventually became a comic that he wrote called Virus. And the final attempt was a script based on the 1932 film, The Most Dangerous Game, which Farah also wrote and had take place in New Orleans, basically to give an explanation of Jean-Claude Van Damme's accent. Yeah, which also, fun fact, is uh, the character choice for Street Fighter as well. There's a line that's cut from the movie to explain why he has got a Belgian accent. It's because he is American. He's from New Orleans. Would you look... Okay, if you looked at the video game, Guile, and they said, that guy's from New Orleans, would you believe them? Oh, absolutely not. But at the same time, you know, Cammy's Australian, Dal Sim's a doctor, Balrog is a cameraman. Like, at this point, it's just like, these characters are not the characters I know from the game. But anyway, so Hard Target became the film based on the most dangerous game. Uh, it filmed from October 1st, 1992, had 74 days of production. It was shot on location in New Orleans. And Universal, despite all the marketing shit, clearly was still anxious at that point because they gave them 65 days to shoot the movie. And also Universal wanted the violence toned down because they didn't want this to get uh, an NC-17. They needed it to get yeah. an R. Oh yeah, that's always the worry. Uh, I mean, I hate to keep bringing it up, but Street Fighter had the exact same problem. In fact, the first cut of Street Fighter did get an R rating, and it was in Jean-Claude Van Damme's contract that it had to be a PG-13, so they had to have a lot of runarounds to get it re-edited and get brought down to a PG-13. And in the end, it actually got brought down to a PG, which is what they didn't want. <laughs> Wu's language barrier, it was a slight issue. Um, eventually, he basically managed to communicate with the cinematographer by just going with very simple reference statements, like, this will be the Sam Peckinpah shot. Mm. Rather than try and say, I want the camera here, or I want this angle, or I want to pull in like this, he would just give him a reference. Yeah. 
And James Jacks recalled that Wu was not the most powerful person on the set, but basically was respected. No one, like, chose the language barrier as a reason to disrespect him. The film was shot for a budget of about $19.5 million. Box office brought in 74.2. A pretty respectable return. It, it was kind of niche. I mean, Van Damme was a big name in action circles, and this was the 90s, and action was very much an 80s thing, you know? The further we get into the 90s, the more it gets defanged. Yeah, this is in an era where they are, they're trying to get away from the R rating and they're trying to move into the PG-13 rating to try and get more eyes onto this. You know, it's why Street Fighter was trying to go for that PG-13 rating over an R, when it was probably, you know, better suited to be an R-rated movie. I mean, that was certainly the case with Mortal Kombat. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. But, like, they always, they always set out for that movie to be PG-13 because they believed, and I've, you know, Paul Douglas Anderson is on record saying this in a book that I wrote, that um, the majority of the people that played Mortal Kombat were kids. So they wanted to make it a movie that kids could see. And it absolutely makes sense. And, you know, there's a lot of critics of that first Mortal Kombat movie. I really like it. Yeah, it's, I think it's great. It clips along. And while, yes, there could be a lot more gore, all of the characters are identifiable as the characters. Other than a few wonky CGI moments, there's no real diversion from the source material. Mortal Kombat Annihilation, however, yee. Mm -hmm. I think we will get to that in our timeline, and I mean, fucking hell, that's a story that's to be told. Jesus. But back to Hard Target, uh, the sequel, which was released in 2016, bloody hell, starred Robert Nepper, Rona Mitra, Andrew Ong, Temura Morrison, Adam Sanders, Jamie Timoney, Peter Hardy, Troy Honeyset, Sean Keenan, and Sahajakbun Thanakit. Rona Mitra is the name that jumps out to me there because she was the first live-action Lara Croft. Oh, in the uh, the kind of trailer short thing. Yeah, and like whenever they would go to like press events and things like that, and they would bring out someone to be, you know, Lara Croft, it was Rona Mitra. I think the only other name Robert Nepper does kind of leap out to me a little bit. Uh, one is for some not very good reasons uh various accusations made against him the other mm -hmm. is he was in the uh the twin peaks reboot yeah i i mean i know him from um prison break he was um teabag in prison break it sounds like he is a bit of a teabag to be fair <laughs> yeah. i'm really hopeful that hard target gets a really nice collector's edition someday and maybe one day we will get the unrated cut because there is a vhs work print bootleg of it out there but it is, it is far from the best quality. It's probably second or third generation before it even got digitized. And we've had some nice versions of Street Fighter and some other Van Damme movies come out recently. I mean, this one's got Van Damme and John Woo. There's, there's no excuse. Let's get an arrow. Let's get a, a shout factory, a scream factory, a whatever factory. Get, get on it, guys. It, it, it would sell. I mean, I'd buy at least two copies. Yeah, it surprises me that there isn't already a version of that out there. I would have thought, like, you know, considering the time it was released and sort of the, the impact that it had, I would have thought that there there would be some Blu-ray, which means that there is probably a reason that there isn't one. It's probably something to do with rights. One of my favourite little behind-the-scenes stories that I just remembered, because, you know, we've, we've, got, we've got another film to discuss, actually. But during the film, there is a moment where Lance Henriksen's character, his jacket catches fire, and he takes it off, throws it on the ground and stamps on it, all whilst delivering his dialogue. That was not in the script. <laughs> his jacket accidentally caught fire whilst they were shooting and he didn't even give them a chance to shout cut. He just 
realized he was on fire, took the jacket off, put it out, delivered his lines. Dude is a f***ing pro. Love Lance Henriksen, man. They recently did the um, the abandoned Alien 3 script as an audible full cast drama. Yeah. Hearing him back oh, yeah. as Bishop was just... Like, obviously, he sounds older. They all sound older. I thought they got a great sound alike in for Ripley as well. She did a great job. But just having Bishop back in there, oh, that was pretty sweet. And we've been building to this for a little while now because it is the last week that this is top of the charts. Meatloaf's I Would Do Anything For Love, uh, brackets, but I won't do that. I finally sat down. I watched the music video. I watched all seven minutes of it. Um, yeah, it's pretty great, really, isn't it? It doesn't feel like it's seven minutes, which I think, you know, is, is certainly a credit to uh, to the direction and to like the way that it is structured and stuff. And yeah, I, I, I very much enjoyed it. There's my review. I was genuinely not sure what you'd make of it because, I mean, this is right at the beginning of Michael Bay's career because it's a Michael Bay flick. You know, he, he got the job after David Fincher turned it down. David Fincher was going to direct this. His budget of $1.5 million was rejected. Michael Bay put in a bid for half that and got the job. Still, man, like, that's three quarters of a million dollars on a music video. Like, nowadays, uh, the music industry would give someone, I don't know, five quid and a packet of peanuts to, to make a music video if they're lucky. There was so much money in the music industry back in these days. And even by music video standards, this was bloody lavish. This looks and feels like something that actually probably cost in some ways more than $750,000. Like, it feels like it's part of a bigger production. And it's a seven minute long video. This still isn't the full length version of the song. Part of me does wonder, did he ever shoot enough material to go, you know, the full 10, 11 minute version? I would kind of hope he did. And maybe one day, you know, when Meatloaf or Michael Bay snuff it, we'll get a restored, I don't know, extended cut. But in addition to directing this, Michael Bay also actually directed two other music videos for singles from this album. He also directed the videos for Objects in the Rearview Mirror May Appear Closer Than They Are. God, that's a snappy title. I'm amazed that didn't chart more. And also Rock and Roll Dreams Come Through. They filmed it in Los Angeles County and also up in Beverly Hills. And the cinematographer was a guy called Daniel Pearl, who was probably best known at that point for being the cinematographer and filming The Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 1973 mm. i could have stood for this music video to go a bit darker i wouldn't have minded getting a bit of that texas chainsaw mood in here well oh, you know not that dinner scene though not around the dining table the Soros family pearl does say that this video is one of his personal all-time favorite projects and i think the cinematography is pure and it tells a story about the song and it absolutely does this is not your standard let's have a singer sing a song while other stuff goes on around him this is essentially a Slightly creepy retelling of Beauty and the Beast. And Beauty and the Beast is already a bit creepy. So the music video opens with Meatloaf up on his motorcycle. He's being chased by local law enforcement. We don't know why. Well, he's a monster. Yeah, I, I suppose maybe we're going for the Nightbreed angle. It doesn't matter. You know, we just want to destroy Midian. Well, and Beauty and the Beast, the townsfolk, just want to kill him because he's a beast. Absolutely fair. He basically seeks refuge in a castle because you know what los angeles has got a lot of luke oh castles there's bloody loads of them. that and palm trees it doesn't have any castles really does it no absolutely not no oh wait no the scientology headquarters that kind of looks like a castle <laughs> i drove past it once and flipped it off i'm probably cursed now the police surround the castle as meatloaf flees 
and that's when we get his first look of him and he's kind of got a heavy brow he's got strange talons he's got gaunt features and this is before the makeup no he's basically yeah. done up to look like the beast maybe the reason he's being chased is because he's a bit creepy because we then cut to him creeping around a forest spying on a girl who appears to be filming a Timothée commercial mm-hmm. she's bathing and whatnot and he gets caught because apparently he doesn't know that when you're hiding in the bushes spying on someone you shouldn't carry highly reflective objects <laughs> so he runs he drops his locket that he's carrying she finds it and follows him back then it gets kind of weird if it wasn't weird already because she's wandering around the castle somehow missing this creature that is just sliding around in a chair in a very cool kind of magic trick i mean there is no shonky green screen or CGI in this. It, it's all being done with practical effects and wires. And I think that and the 35mm stock it was shot on is one of the reasons it still looks so good. The the bit when the chair slides, although unintentionally proper, made me laugh. Like it's just, it is just a very much like a wee! It, I don't know why, but it really made me laugh out loud. It made me think of Jamiroquai's virtual insanity where just all the <laughs> yeah. furniture starts shifting. As they go around, they're singing, and Meatloaf is repeatedly saying, as we've discussed before, he won't do that, but what that is, well, there's a number of possibilities. And then we get to the Mrs. Loud section, which, of course, this is not Mrs. Loud that we're watching. This is an actress who got the recording career offers based off of someone else's work. At this point, she kind of starts floating up on a chaise long kind of thing with a very heaving presence. Her presence was very heaving. So, Michael Bay's a scumbag. Like, he he absolutely is. Like, there is a reason why he casts certain people. Um, yeah, the, you know, the very famous story that Megan Fox's audition for Transformers was to wash his car in a bikini while he filmed. Like, he is, he's an actual scumbag. And it's, it, like, the, the casting of uh, Miss Loud, Bucky O'Hare is in this totally makes sense. Yeah, he probably saw and he went full on Monty Python. He's just like, she's got huge tracts of land. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But while she's floating and singing, Meatloaf is also singing, but also watching her on an old kinescope. Do you know what? I love this music video, but then when I actually have to describe the plot of it, it starts to crumble a bit. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. Like any Michael Bay movie. It's no wonder the guy got chased through China by a man with an air conditioning unit. Still, one of my favourite Michael Bay stories is that someone was so angry at him, they chased him with a physical air conditioning (laughs) unit. That's a level of pissed off I can't even begin to imagine. But anyway, as their duet finishes, they they kind of come together and they begin to escape because the police have broken in and the police get even more pissed off when a chandelier falls on one of them. Yeah. And the chase sequence continues and then the song ends as Meatloaf, now cured of his beastly appearance because, you know, it is beauty that soothes the beast. And they ride off into the sunset with uh, the fake Mrs. Loud doing the arms spread out wide into the sunset there's also helicopter shots in there because michael bay yeah i mean as i said like he is a a bit of a scumbag but like man you want to talk about a style that is already formed like i mean he is a fully formed director at this point this is the we are getting into the era now of the music video director and a lot of these people because they essentially do big budget things big budget looking things on much smaller budgets but yeah, he has a style already, and it is a style that he's carried through into all of his bullshit movies that he's made. 
I will always have a very soft spot for this music video because it's a level of bombastic that I think we start to move away from. You know, we're, we're out of the 80s. We're not getting any more thrillers. No. There will be big budget music videos, but I don't think any of them will go for this kind of weird fantasy storytelling element. Not, not in this no. way. No, they'll be very, very stylistic, very stylistic, and will feature, you know, celebrities and, and this and the other and sort of like grow from that aspect. But yeah, but this sort of like big storytelling thing. I mean, like, you know, Corn's Freak on Alicia's got some sort of elements of that, but it's not like this like extended version of that. Like they don't sort of extend out the song to build a sort of five minute move. They just make a very cool music video for the three and a half minutes the song lasts for. And even then, it's like, it, I mean, I know Freak on a Leash, amazing music video. Also, we mentioned Jamiroquai earlier. His tie-in for the Godzilla movie, while it is yeah. a long way away, that is a big budget thing. But it's also a tie-in. Any time, like Men in Black is the same. It ties in, yeah. you know, the, the money is already there. They're not trying to raise the money separately. But this whole idea of let's spend this amount of money mount a full production crew because the scale of this music video was pretty much the same as a film mm -hmm. i just don't think we really see it again and we don't see it again for meatloaf's music career either because bad out of hell 2 did amazing money and then what followed on from that i remember being so excited for his follow-on albums and then getting it and putting it in and going ah <laughs> i think this is the pinnacle of his career until we get to fight club <laughs> and yeah. his bitch tits <laughs> his name is Robert Paulson. I would love to have known what David Fincher's version of this would have turned out like because it may have even been the same story. That may have been what Mr. Loaf was aiming for all along. But I I I don't know. I, I can't see Fincher directing this music video. No, 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 no. He would have made a very, very cool music video that would have had loads of studio interference and would have been a completely different music video by the time we actually got to it. And then someone would have had to do an audio version of the actual version of it much later on with Lance Henriksen coming back. And we've gone full circle. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Well done. Thank you very much. A uh, couple of new releases to go through. Uh, not too many massive ones. Well, actually, I say not too many. Ones. There's one huge one of those. Cool Spot gets released on the Super Nintendo. Chippendale 2 gets released on the NES, which I find to be an interesting one because while it is more of the same, it, like DuckTales 2, and I think I mentioned this last week, it's surprising that it's on the NES. Like, that is, like, a lot of the reviews of the time are like, yeah, it's good, it just... I kind of wish it was a 16-bit game, because it's an 8-bit game, which means it's not going to get a lot of people playing it. Uh, and, uh, you know, and it, while it is more of the same, yeah, I'm, I'm in agreement. I kind of wish this was a 16-bit version. Like, I'd have preferred DuckTales 2 to have been a 16-bit sequel to the 8-bit classic. It's a, it's a strange decision. It's not one I could claim I could fully understand, other than, I mean, there was an element of asset recycling or just asset modification, so it was probably going to be a lot cheaper than having to start from scratch. So they went, you know what? We may not sell as many as if we put this out on the Super Nintendo, but our production costs are way, way lower. Uh, and like with DuckTales 2, it is available on the Disney Afternoon Collection. Plock also gets its release, which we had reviewed last week, but... The big motherfucker first-person shooters is here. Doom is released on MS-DOS. And holy hell. Hell being the operative word there. You want to talk about a game that I plug 
hours and hours and hours into when we've got our proper family pc i got a copy of doom on there i believe it was final doom so you know that had like all of it uh, in there but holy <sighs> shit, man i played so much King Doom. I remember playing Doom uh, on Shareware, but I didn't play it as much because I guess by the time I got uh, access to a PC that could properly run it, Quake was just around the corner. However, Final Doom on the PlayStation, that was a game I did play a lot of and loved. And I've still got a very soft spot for that classic Doom now. I think I've owned it on almost every modern platform. I've definitely got a version of it for the Switch and Doom 64, which is oh, on yeah. the Switch. And Doom 64 is great. Like, that's the, that's the best of both worlds in my mind. That's uh, that's Doom++. Plus Plus. Yeah, I, I think it was it was underappreciated at its time when it came out because, like, it was so dark. Like, there are pure... Like, and it's hard as well. It's hard as balls. But the re-release that they did of it recently on the PlayStation 4, when they did, like, when Doom 2016 was a big hit and they kind of re-released... Uh, doom 1 2 3 and uh doom 64 it's a it's a really really good um sort of like port of it and it brightens things up a little bit it kind of adds and sort of takes away yeah i, I mean i think doom 64 is badass man it's a really great game the the, the book masters of doom is a, a fantastic story of like the creation of doom because it's essentially it's born out of a rejection from nintendo Romero and Carmack found a way to make Super Mario Brothers 3 run on a PC. They managed to find a way to do like parallax scrolling on a PC. Pitched it to Nintendo to be like, look, we could do a PC port of Super Mario Brothers 3. And Nintendo were like, no. So they were like, well, okay, well, we found this way to do this thing. So from that came Castle Wolfenstein, which was, you know, was born out of sort of, you know, because they wanted to make this 3D shooter because they now had a, a system. And then Doom is born out of castle wolfenstein super mario brothers 3 and their love of metal music and dungeons and dragons because like the way that sort of you know they cut they lined things out was based on dungeons and dragons going into dungeons and exploring rooms finding things opening things fighting monsters and when you play it sort of like you know if you're a D player as well you can kind of you, it almost feels like a dungeon crawl and oh man i just i've got so much time for that original version of doom and the music for it is so so great it's it's basically you know chiptune versions of your favorite metal tracks slightly tweaked so that they just enough resemble the thing to give you a hint of it's like this slayer song that you like so much time for it and like uh, the, the 2016 game that came out as well i think is superb i've only just got around to playing doom eternal and i'll be honest i'm not massively enjoying it at the moment but i don't think i've given it enough of a shot just yet games like doom and maybe this is just me getting older i need to be in the right frame of mind with them and i think the only reason i've not tried doom eternal yet and i think i like it's on the game pass so i can get it fairly easily and it's just like mm, i'm not in the right frame of mind 
I mean, I'm looking at the time and how long we've been going already, you know, before getting to the episode. And I mean, we could do an entire episode on Doom. And who knows, maybe at some point down the line, we will do an entire episode on Doom and our relationship with Doom. But one last fact, and I think this just shows what a big deal Doom was, was that in 1995, it was estimated that Doom was on more computers than Windows 95. That is nuts. And like, it is a game that has been ported to, I mean, we say it's been ported to everything. Uh, one of the big running jokes about Doom is that it can literally run on anything. There are people who have hacked cash machines to run Doom. There are people who have hacked McDonald's uh, tills to run Doom. It is, oh man, what a game and what a legacy it's created. Hello and welcome to the Games Master Team Championship. You've joined us here in the caretaker's furnace room for the second heat where three more teams are competing for a place in the semi-finals where they can win, if they get through to the finals, that is, not only the coveted title of Games Master Team of Champions, but a whole bunch of Megamongus video prizes. Let's hope the teams are on form, because we got the freshest new games we could find, and the teams are lucky if they get to see the car, let alone play it as practice. It's the second heat of the team championships, and we get to see Dave Perry looking super cool with his arms folded as this episode starts. Looking cool, Mr. Perry. I appreciated Dex's opening pun, because he welcomes us back to the furnace rooms for the second heat. Get it? Heat? <laughs> furnace rooms? I'm not even sure it was deliberate, but I'm going to give him the credit for it. I was going to say, I didn't pick up on that at all. Like, when you said there's a pun in this, I was like, was there? This is me. Like, if there's a pun to be picked up on, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to sniff it out. I'm, I'm like a drug dog for puns. <laughs> okay, uh, the red team have been let out of their cell, and they're the Leighton Wizards, aren't they? Leighton Wizards? Yep. Hello, good evening. So, who's your team captain? Me, Leon. Leon? Hassan. Hassan? Paul. Paul, so you're the team captain, Leon? Yep. What would you say that your team's strong game is? Strong at everything. We're just typically the best. Yeah? You're going to be the best every game we've got tonight? Every game. All right, well, good luck. Let's go on and meet the green team. This way. OK, this is the culture crew. Excuse me, young man. Let's get through here. Culture crew from London. Here they are. And their team captain. Come on, tell us your name. What's your name? Isis. Isis. And what's your name? Anthony. Anthony. Tom. Tom. OK, Isis. You heard the other team. They reckon they were going to be good at every kind of challenge we got on tonight's show. What do you reckon your team's going to be good at? You see what you're getting, you're getting the best. We're getting the best, yeah? Is that right, lad? You're the best? Yep. Yeah, you're going to kick the other teams up? You know it. All right, well, there you go. There you have it fresh from your very own mouth. Right, let's go and meet the final team, the yellow team, this way. Excuse me. Okay, through here, we've got the yellow team. They're called the Gits, and they're from Milton Keynes. Mm-hmm, sounds a bit ominous. Okay, what's your name, team captain? Steve. Team captain, Steve. Sunel. Sunel. Bradley. Bradley, do you want to tell us why you're called the Gits, Steve? Here you tell you. Go on, Brad. We're the Gaming International Team Specialists. Oh, Gaming International Team Specialists. Well, let's hope you are specialists. I like ISIS. I was going to say, this team needed ISIS because, like, the other two, Anthony and Tom, are muttery teens. Like, they have not got much to say, but they like, ISIS is so charismatic that she really carries and, like, and elevates that team. But last up, it's probably the best name from any team that we're going to get. It's the Gits from Milton Keynes. I want this team to win tonight. I want this team to win the whole team championships. These are my kind of guys, the gits. Um, yeah, it's the gaming international team specialist, and one of them is wearing a Mega Dave t-shirt. The captain is Steve, and he's joined by Sulil and Bradley. And which one was wearing the Mega Dave shirt? It might have been Steve, the team captain. I just noticed that one of them was wearing a Mega Dave t-shirt, and I'm always going to make note if someone's wearing a Mega Dave t-shirt. But they do explain the name, as you've just done so as well. 
And yeah, my note here was, I am team Git all the way. <laughs> I even text my cousin, because like Mega Dave, like I don't know whether it's it's me and my cousin have always referred to them as Mega Dave, because, you know, it's, it's Dave Mustaine. And um, we, I text him, in fact, I was like, oh, mate, I'm watching an episode of Games Master. Someone's wearing a Mega Dave t-shirt, and he just sent me back in all caps, Mega Dave! But now that we've met the teams, let's get on with the challenges. What's up first, Games Master? For the night's platform game, I've chosen the magical and mysterious Sky Blazers for the Super Nintendo. Guiding your character through the ancient landscape, you must collect 50 diamonds in the quickest time. Shooting or punching the cloaked villains along the way will reveal more diamonds and prevent you from losing a single life that I've granted you for this task. I'll award five points to the winner, two to the runner-up, and nothing to the loser. We're kicking off with the platforming challenge, and we're playing Skyblazer, which got reviewed a couple of episodes ago. Very simple, collect 50 diamonds in the quickest time possible. I'm really glad we see this game for a challenge, because you know what? It does, as I think we said in the review, it looks like a good game. It looks fun. It's got some really nice graphics. And also, 50 diamonds, quickest time possible. It's a nice little speed challenge. And because it's a runny-jumpy platformer, yes, Jazz Rignall will hate it because it's all the same again, but... It means no matter how much or how little they've had a chance to practice, they all know the mechanics. There's going to be nothing here that should trip them up too much. Well, Leon of the Wizards is up first, and he does pretty okay while playing the game, actually. Like, he collects, you know, the, the smaller ones, collects the big ones. I think he gets quite unlucky with some of the power-up drops that kind of go along the way. But he gets 59 diamonds in 35 seconds, which is a really, really good benchmark time to set. Yeah, I, I did actually mean, and sadly, because life, I was actually going to try and recreate some of these challenges where, you know, I've got the games on the SNES Classic and stuff. But I was looking at it going, I'm not sure, you know, as rusty as I am on a game like this, that I could do this in 35 seconds. But Steve is up next, and he gets off to a quick start, a very quick start, in fact, too quick. He takes damage almost immediately, then mistimes a jump, then takes more damage, and then at 22 seconds, he's dead and only has 25 diamonds. Not a good look. <laughs> oh, man, Steve. Steve, come on, man. Yeah, like, he makes quite a lot of, like, errors. And it isn't just, like, it's one error, it's two errors. Like, I feel like this run is a constant state of errors. Like, basically, he dies because he lands on the spikes and then stays on the spikes and kills the baddies while using his iframes. But then the iframes stop and he just gets killed by the spikes that he was standing on. So, yeah, it's only 25 diamonds. And he was on 22 seconds as it currently was. Like, I think even if he'd have got through, he wouldn't have got that many in the next 13 seconds. It was a very poor run from Steve. Isis is up last, and Dave points out that she has a definite advantage of knowing where the diamonds are from seeing the previous playthroughs. Not that you would know it, because she still takes quite a bit of damage, misses out on a big diamond, but eventually makes 49 diamonds in 35 seconds. Yeah, she's unlucky as well, because when she jumps, she actually jumps over one. And like, she basically just sort of like carries on because she's, you know, you know conscious that going back is going to lose her time, even though it's literally just behind her. But missing that one diamond cost her this entire challenge, which is a real shame for her. But that's the end of the first challenge. Dex, what are the scores? The Gits, they died, and so they get no points. That means they've got zero on the scoreboard. The Culture Crew, well, they did get 49 diamonds, so they get two points. But out in the lead at the moment is the Red Team, the Leighton Wizards. They got their full 50 diamonds in 35 seconds. They've got five points. Ah, the Gits. The Gits are, are striking out already, Luke. It's not a good oh, look. Oh, man. 
I'm worried for them now because as we pointed out last week, you know, the Wizards, that basically guarantees them their spot in the final challenge. So now they get to really got to make up for it in the second challenge. And this is kind of why the team championships works. And, I, you know, to put my cards on the table here, I much preferred this episode to the first one. I really quite enjoyed this episode. Man, this team championship thus far, because I've done my notes for the first three, four episodes now, it's a roller coaster. Oh, the episode. It's time to wake up and smell the hummus. He's lost his sword and now he's got a cape. Our hero, Aladdin, has made his way from the Mega Drive to the Super Nintendo in a platform romp through six magical worlds. Aladdin on the stairs doesn't really live up to its Mega Drive rival, mainly because the animation just isn't there. It's good. There's some entertaining bits in it. I like the carpet ride. Um, the only trouble is that it's too easy. It's one of the best platformers of the year. It's smooth, it looks good, and the animation is worthy of Walt himself. Our Motley crew this week includes Andy Nuttall from Sega's own Jazz Rignal from Me Machine Sega, and Steve Merritt also from Me Machine Sega. And up first on the chopping block, it's a game that we've talked about quite a bit uh, in recent times because we had it featured as a challenge against Master Live. It got its release last week. Here it is being reviewed. It's Aladdin on the Super Nintendo. And the basic summary of this is, it's not as good as the Mega Drive version. Which was my argument the other week. It's not that the Mega Drive version's the good version, it's that it's the better version. Not that you could convince Steve Merritt of that, because he does say it's one of the best platformers of the year and says the animation would be worthy of Walt himself. And when he said that, I made the note of he's either high or he was playing the Mega Drive version. Yeah, it does feel like that is a quote from the Mega Drive review of the game. But also, uh, Dex's opening line, wake up and smell the hummus. Do you know what it made me want, Luke? It made me want a big tub of hummus. Oh, mate. I mean, I've not been to the office now for, for near, coming on a year. And one of the things that I used to love about our office is that outside there was a van and the van sold street meat. And while I'm not a meat eater, they did do falafel wraps. And it was falafel and hummus. And it was so big and chunky. It was a two wrap job. And I would get that and a portion of chips. And I think that is why I put on so much weight in the year 2019. And in 2020, I've lost it all because I'm not having my big falafel wraps and chips with burger sauce all over it. Greasy as fuck it were. There's that whole thing of like hummus and over here, at least like middle class, you know, it's like Waitrose and hummus and the joke of there being like essentials hummus, which oh yeah, I think it's funny as well. Like hummus is so not historically it's definitely not a middle class food and i wish it would stop being viewed and treated as one because i've been to countries and places where you know hummus is just part of the staple diet and one it's the cheapest food you can get mm -hmm. i traveled for an event and on my first night there i went and i got some freshly made falafel and some hummus and a pitta and like it cost me the equivalent of like a pound 50 yeah and i was then speaking with some people that i was seeing the next day and they said oh what did you do for dinner last night and i told them and they said how much did you spend and i told them and they're like that's all that that's all you had for dinner why you know you could have gone to this restaurant or this restaurant and i'm like yeah but i really like falafel and hummus yeah it's and wicked it is and also i learned that you know what for all our different varieties of hummus over here we don't know how to make hummus yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, me and my, I mean, as it's going to sound as middle class as possible, me and my wife make our own hummus. Um, and we, uh, we have been spending years, we spent years and years and years trying to perfect uh, a hummus recipe. And we have never quite got it to be like 
as good as hummus can possibly be. Because we, I mean, we bloody love hummus. If we're buying a bag of crisps to have as a snack, a pot of hummus is being bought alongside it. Because kettle chips, the salt and uh, cracked black pepper ones, brilliant with a little bit of hummus. Tyrrell's sweet chili crisps, brilliant with a pot of hummus. Do you know what I like best with a pot of hummus? What do you go for? Spoon. <laughs> You know, let's just get past the carrot and the celery dipping. Let's just get a spoon in there. Love it. But anyway, away from the hummus, this is a SNES version of the game. It gets 78%, which I think is a quite respectable score. It's not as good as the Mega Drive version, and I'm fine with that. But 78%, as we've discussed on review scores, that is still fairly respectable. That's definitely still in the worth a punt category. Yeah, absolutely. And if you've got a Super Nintendo, then, and you want to play Aladdin... It's at least you're getting a decent version. It's not like the Mega Drive one is so good and the SNES one is so shit. It's just that the Mega Drive one is better. But hey, you're still getting a decent game if you were a Super Nintendo owner. Speaking of so shit. Space Helmets on for this, the first game on Atari's new Super Console to Jaguar. Flying your craft through loads of alien worlds, collecting, blasting, and generally looking cool is what it's all about in this 3D game of discovery. Cybermorph's the game that's packaged along with the new uh, Atari Jaguar console. And believe me, it's very, very good indeed. If this is the state of Jaguar games at the moment, then, well, we've got a lot to look forward to in the future. The game's, well, sort of like Starwing with knobs on, but uh, it's good. It's uh, very fast. Uh, the shoot map action's excellent. It looks the business, and it should sell Jaguars, but in terms of playability, it leaves a bit to be desired. Yeah, and it gets a good score here. 81% for Cybermorph on the Atari Jaguar. Man, is there a line here that is does not hold up at all? Which is from Andy, who says, Oh, it's very good indeed. If this is what we're getting to start the Atari Jaguar, we've got a lot to look forward to in the future. Oh, Andy, if you only knew, mate. If you only knew. I mean, this was the pack-in game for the Jaguar. This was the equivalent, I almost said, of Mario World. And then that just made me realise, ooh... But you're right, though. It is their equivalence of Mario World. It's like, you know, it coming with Sonic the Hedgehog. It is like, you've got the Atari Jaguar. This is what you can expect from the Atari Jaguar. It's a green face asking, where did you learn to fly? The problem is, this is coming out, and this is the flagship game for the Jaguar. It does look pretty good because this is 1993. But you know what else looks pretty good? Star Fox. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. Like, I think Star Wing looks better than Cybermorph. You know, for the big sort of 64-bit console, I think Starwing looks way better. And Jazz basically says, this is Starwing with knobs on. But I disagree with Jazz there. I think Starwing is the one with all the knobs on it. I mean, that's assuming he's using knob as a complimentary term. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> you know, as opposed to going, this game, it's a bag of dicks, basically. I mean, this is missing things that Star Fox had. There's no music in this game. There's bleeps oh. and bloops. This is, this is Pong. The only sound you have is that green face asking, Where did you learn to fly? And it divided reviewers as well. Some people loved it. Some people did, as we said, compared it to Star Fox, but compared it very unfavorably to Star Fox. There was, I think, a lot of brand pride. Like a lot of the Atari magazines and journalists and publications went apeshit over it because it was their thing. It was their big comeback to the console world. And it was meant to herald the new atari order and it really didn't no that we've had the running joke of hey guess what luke and there's an atari port but the problem is we've got a lot of that still to come and the atari games that we do get very few of them impress and i wish i wish that wasn't the case well i do like you know being able to take 
the occasional jabs at it because it was a colossal cluster not the biggest console cluster in the 90s but it no. was it was up there i also don't think jazz sounds particularly convinced like when he's because he, it's it you know he sort of likes it but he does not sound convinced by you know the the comments that he's making steve i think is very much more balanced of the three because he says it looks the business but it's not very playable. Still, 81%, I think, is a really good score. I think a very high score for Cybermorph as well, because outside from the fact that, you know, there's no music, it's certainly not as good as Star Wing. I think it's a quite a boring game to play. I played it a couple of years ago when I got my Atari Jaguar because, you know, it's the packing game. And it is boring. It's quite a dull game. And the crazy thing is, they're reviewing it here in the tail end of 93. We technically didn't get it for another six months. It didn't come out until June 94. And you say it was boring. It got more boring because there were two versions of it released. The original version, which was copyrighted 93, was a two megabyte cartridge. And then when they released a revised version in 94, it was a one megabyte cartridge. And they basically cut out the intro and ending animation sequences and reduced the voice samples. They literally removed a few of the saving graces of the entire fucking game. It's a D-master. It's a, we know this is shit, we're just hoping we can sell it, and if it costs us less, our losses will be less. Which, unfortunately, yeah. I think is actually a lot of the Atari Jaguar all summed up. Are you wondering how we at Gamesmaster get games so far in advance? Well, we get sent hundreds of prototype chips that look something like this, which eventually end up in the shops as fully developed games cartridges. For the rest of the series, Gamesmaster will exclusively preview the most exciting and, as yet, unreleased games for our new feature, In Development. And we kick off this week with the very first pictures of the arcade game you've all been waiting for, Mortal Kombat 2. The game is even bigger this time round, with 12 fighters for you to choose from. Here it is. Mortal Kombat 2, more characters, three times more images, more secret moves, more battlegrounds, more hidden surprises. Sonya's gone, but in her place is Melina with her truly explosive death move. Other newcomers include Big Bad Baracus, a kind of Mexican cowboy jacks, and Kum Lao. Meanwhile, the boffins of Probe Software are hard at work on the console version. Stand by for pictures of that very soon. And we've got a new feature starting up on Games Master here. It's a feature that's being called In Development, where we're going to get a sort of a preview of games that are coming out, which I am all for. Like, this is a really, really cool feature idea. I'm really, really down for this. And the In Development this week is Mortal Kombat 2, because... It's in the arcades now. Mortal Kombat is such a hot topic at the moment because the uh, console release is blowing up the charts. It's going to be probably one of the biggest selling games of the year. So we're getting a sequel to it already if you get down to your local arcades. Not only that, but there's more fatalities. There's more stages. But more importantly, there's more characters now. Yeah, they don't say stages. They've kind of coined their own term here. They're calling them battlegrounds, which I, I appreciate that they're trying to kind of build their own thing. But man alive, when we had Mortal Kombat on, I was like, oh, I remember playing this and I remember loving this and this is so much fun. And it was a great episode and we got to talk to Master Daniel Piscina, which was amazing. And then we get this preview for Mortal Kombat 2 and I don't just get the, oh, I remember how much fun this was. I get the, and I need to play this now because this game by look alone holds up so much better than the first one. This game mm -hmm. just looks so rich and it moves so well. And you can tell that, Thankfully, they didn't just shovel out a second one. They didn't just rest on their haunches 
they they really went to town and created something so much bigger and i think this and maybe a bit of mortal kombat 3 is certainly the peak of mortal kombat until we get the reboot in 2010 now i would love for us to just kind of like go in deep on mortal kombat 2 now because it's such a great game but this is not the last time we will see mortal kombat 2 it comes back for a challenge it's in the consultation zone we will get more than an ample opportunity to talk about this game and I'm fully intending to have spent a good amount of time playing it by that point so I can look at how I felt about it then and maybe see how I feel about it now. Well, it's time for our next challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? My mystery game this evening is the bizarrely titled Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine for the Sega Mega Drive. Our contestants must collect as many beans as possible in 45 seconds by joining together groups of four or more beans of the same color in any formation. Once again, five points will be awarded for the winning team, two to the runner-up, and nothing to the loser. Well, here's a game I did not expect to see on Games Master as a challenge. This is the mystery round for uh, the team championships, and we're playing Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine. It's the Sonic game that's actually based on the animated series. It's a reskin of Puyo Puyo. But the crucial thing and the most important thing for me at the very least is that this is the animated series game. I've actually got a real soft spot. I know I didn't play it at the time because I didn't have a Mega Drive, but going back and playing it later, I love the kind of dropping blocks, your jewels, your columns, your Tetris and your Puyo Puyo. I have a real soft spot for Mean Bean Machine because, yeah, it it's the cartoon. And it also just, it's fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really fun. And it's a great two-player game as well. I, I love anything that lets you go head-to-head. And so seeing it here was a real surprise. And I'm appreciating that they're going a little bit out of the ballpark for some of these challenges. We get more of it next week as well, like like some really strange challenges next week but this was a lot of fun it's a similar format to tetris except rather than matching shapes to make lines you have to join colors together and then when you get more than four they disappear and they drop down and you know you can if you're very good you can like get like five or six yeah it's got more in common with columns than it has tetris because columns you know it's gets it's like it's matching the color jewels i mean that one it's three and this one it's four and they're a bit more sort of spongy to each other. And it is a game that is still out there today. It was on the Sonic Mega Collection on the GameCube. It was on the revised version of that for the PS2 and the Xbox, and then appeared on another Sega Collection on the PS3 and the 360, and it was on the Wii Virtual Console, and then it got released on Windows via Steam, and then it got released for the 3DS, and I'm fairly certain that if I looked, I could probably get it on the Switch or yeah, or something it's out there and it's still playable and you can actually go out and you can get better versions of Poyo Poyo now you know that's that's a game that's out there and is still readily available in many iterations but there is something strangely appealing about this reskin there's something that just kind of speaks to me and yeah it's the sonic branding it works yeah i mean i was a sonic kid at this point in time but i never had dr robotic mean bean machine i was always kind of like drawn to it though because i also liked the cartoon series i did like the adventures of sonic the hedgehog and i liked um sat am but like as in the sort of the adventures style of things i've re- i did like that show because i was a sonic fan and this was 
a animated Sonic game. We do get cameos in Sonic Spinball of the animated series characters, like from you know, from Satayim at the very least. But yeah, there was because it was that Doctor Robotnik that this Doctor Robotnik is now in Sonic the comic and is grounder. And I, I was like, yeah, I really want to play this, but I never got it. And I didn't end up getting it till much later in life when I was building up my Mega Drive collection when I was at university. I got a review copy of Sonic Mania. Uh, I've told the story on this podcast before. I was given a very tight turnaround. I essentially had six hours to, to play the game before the uh, the review had to come out. And going through the chemical plant zone, which I was enjoying anyway, because it was so much fun to kind of like, you know, relive with this sort of new functionality of, of Sonic playing. And then the really fun second act of that, when the, the ooze gets turned into different colors, which gives it different properties. I absolutely loved that and the remix music. But man, the smile on my face when you got to the end boss of that level and it's Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine. I made reference to it in my review of like, there are so many wonderful, like hidden surprises in this. They're not so much hidden, but like things you just, you're not expecting. But if you are a Sonic fan, they're going to bring such a smile to your face. You know, no, I was like very close, like no spoilers from me. But there are certain moments in this game where you all just go like, oh, that's fucking cool. And that was one of those moments where I was like, oh, that's fucking cool. Like, this is clearly a Sonic game that has been made by Sonic fans. I popped similarly when that came up. It caught me off guard because I genuinely wasn't expecting it. And therefore, I nope. actually biffed it the first time because I was so thrown for a loop. Reviewers mixed on it, some liked it, some didn't. A lot of them saw it for what it was, which was basically a reskin of Poyo Poyo. But Amanda Tipping from CNVG thought that the game was as addictive and as puzzling as the Tetris series and also preferred the game's colourful visuals as opposed to Tetris. So she was clearly a fan of Sonic the Hedgehog, the cartoon series. So the game is Mean Beans. Bradley of the Gits is sitting in position. They've got it all to play for because the yellows are in last position at the moment. So he's got to collect as many beans as he possibly can. 45. Uh, in 45. OK, Bradley. Well, our challenge here is you've got to get 45 beans, which Dex kind of like sort of, uh, he biffs when he's doing his intro because he's talks about how you've got to get as many beans as you possibly can. And it's Dave behind him being like, it's 45, Dex. He's like, oh, yeah, sorry, no. Uh, it's 45 seconds that, that's on the clock. Yeah, so most beans in 45 seconds. Yeah, there's a lot of like, yeah, confusing messages going around. Well, one thing that's not confusing is the gits are up first, and it seems to become a pattern for this show is that the trailing team gets to set the pace for the second challenge. I don't know if I agree with it, but Bradley makes a strong start and he manages to get 28 beans in 45 seconds, which is not, not, not something to be sniffed at, really. It's not bad. He makes a few mistakes there's a couple of moments where i'm like no one to the left one yeah and that happens throughout this challenge i shouted at the screen quite a bit you're not the only one shouting either because this is one of those challenges where dex and dave are talking over each other something fierce that, those will be added to you right, so i've got 13 beans so well. far yeah 13 beans so far that was a nice one that was a sixer now he's up to so eight away. He's doing very, very, oh, that was a i didn't notice it as much in this but that's because i was shouting myself so i think <laughs> that's why Anthony is up next, and Dave gives us the factoid that Anthony has beaten Mortal Kombat in 30 minutes. But we wonder, is he a Nancy Boy Easy level player? Yeah, oh, Dave's egging the players on as usual. And I'm like, holy sh**. <laughs> Throwing shade at the kids here, Dave. But Anthony, despite his character being cast into aspersion, he heads off. He does make a few mistakes. He does miss a few connections. I think I shouted at the TV a bit more during his challenge. Right at the start, he has like three pink ones ready to go. And then... For whatever reason, he traps them 
And then his very next bean that he gets has got a pink one on it. It was like a proper rookie error. He would have actually got top score, you know, at this point, if he hadn't made that mistake. But he gets 25, which it's not bad. It's only three below the gits. I think I need to use some magic on this one, Dave. Paul only just skated through in our audition, so it could be tight. But Paul is up last, and Dave says that he only just scraped through the audition, which Dave says a lot in this series. I'm like, if he, a lot of these guys only just scraped through the audition, what is that saying about the audition? But anyway, Paul does really well to start with, but he mistimes one of his drops just as the clock runs out. And it is that drop that, that basically biffs it for him. He could have walked away with it. Exactly like Anthony from the Culture Crew. That one mistake where, you know, you, t- you know, trap those pinks in the corner, that basically costs him that round. Here, holy heckins. Like, you know, he's got 21 with seven seconds to go. He gets to 25 and he has five reds lined up and he absolutely bollockses it. And that's it. And that's his slot. And it's, oh man, it's like like victory being snatched away. But what does this mean for the final scores before one of these teams is eliminated? Over to Dex. The Wizards won the first round, so they got five there. They came second in this heat, so they've got seven altogether. The Gits, they came nowhere in the first round, but they won this challenge, so they've got five. And the Culture Crew got two in the first heat and two in this heat. That means they've only got four. The Gits are through. The Gits are through. Yes, the Gits made it through. They may not have... Oh, man, they, they kind of biffed it in that first challenge, but more than pulled it back in on Dr. Robotnik's Mean Bean Machine. Well done, them. Sadly for the Culture Crew, though, it does mean that... We are seeing the last of them. Here we are, the losing team, culture crew. You got blown out. Isis, are you gutted? No, why should I be? No, all them mega prizes. Wizard of Oz is going to be right behind us. The Wizards are going to be right behind us. It's all getting wound up here. We do get some indication in the next episode that, you know, these teams have kind of like sparred against each other during rehearsals and during practice. And I, I actually really liked it. I liked Isis going, yeah, we lost. But you know what? those guys are going to be right behind us because you know what that means, Luke? It means ISIS is pro-team Gits. And <laughs> I can't begrudge anyone for being, you know, pro-Git. OK, in the second half, we've got the Gits and the Wizards battling out for a place in the semi-finals. We've also got the second part of our FIFA Soccer Challenge, so stay tuned for that one. They say that to enjoy the distinctive taste of wholesome pills, you should drink at eight degrees. Well, no, surely they 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 they, they mean ninety. Mm-hmm. With every McDonald's Happy Meal, there's a character from the new Disney film Aladdin. There's Princess Jasmine and Aladdin, Jafar, the Sultan, and the Genie. In McDonald's Happy Meal boxes, of course. to collect a different one each week at McDonald's. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I can honestly say, with complete impartiality, that the Argos hair is the best yet! seen Vinnie Jones and Les Ferdinand battling it out on our FIFA Soccer Challenge. Well, this week, we've got two football stars of an equal calibre. Right, we are back from the ad break and it's time for our Celebrity Challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? Here we go, here we go, here we go. <laughs> yes. For the second round of my FIFA Soccer Championship, I decided to go pan-European. The teams Italy and Germany should provide an evilly matched coupling of Latin flamboyance and Aryan position. It's all to play for. I can't believe you even asked that. You know what we're playing. <laughs> <laughs> it is the second round of our FIFA International Soccer Tournament and playing it this week are Chelsea's Dennis Wise and Liverpool's John Barnes. Now, John, a uh, little bird tells me that you've had a bit of practice on the FIFA Soccer Challenge, no? Never. Never seen it before. My, son, my son's had a few tries, but I haven't played it yet. No? You've just yeah. been using your natural flair and ability? Well, I'm going for a nil-all draw against Dennis, I think. Yeah, nil-all draw. I'm myself on penalties. Yeah, yeah it's all right. That'd be good if you had that. What do you reckon, Dennis? I'm looking forward to penalties. I'm not a bad penalty taker, so I'm looking forward to it. I'm about that. Because you've got to hold it on and do it at the right time. You can be slow or fast, but you must get to the line. I bloody love John Barnes. As I said before, John Barnes is one of the few footballers to ever be a poster on my wall because I was still into football at around this time. And man, he was such a talent in so many ways. He's still a pundit now and he's still out there working. During his time, he won two league titles with Liverpool, won two cup finals at Wembley. He was also an FA Cup final runner-up with a number of other teams and Liverpool, as will come into play next week. And he earned 79 caps for England. And the thing that strikes me the most about John Barnes, everyone seems to like him. Oh yeah, he's a very likeable chap. Like he's on a lot of like celebrity shows. Yeah, he's done Celebrity Masterchef. But we, and 
when he was on Celebrity MasterChef, I kind of started to wind my wife up a little bit now because anytime he comes on screen, I just look at her and go, you've got to hold it on and do it at the right time because I bloody love World in Motion. I think it's a cracking up song. He's also worked with last week's contestant, Les Ferdinand, and also Luther Blissett. He founded a uh, motorsport team aiming to promote young racing drivers of African-Caribbean background. Right on. The dude just seems to be like pretty damn amazing apart from having to declare bankruptcy that was not so mm. good he described it as the bankruptcy issue is a tax oversight which is being dealt with well i don't know what that tax oversight was it was true and it was all resolved so he's still trucking on he's still out there i occasionally catch glimpses of him when we're flipping through channels and whilst i've no real interest in the game today he'll always have a place in my heart because he yeah. was part of my era of liverpool like when I was a Liverpool supporter along with my uncle. Oh, 100%. That will always stay with me. I mean, I'm an, I'm an Everton fan, you know, when I, particularly in this period of time, because that, that's what my family are. We're all, we're all Everton, you know, we're, we're Evertonians. We're from the blue half of Merseyside. So John Barnes, you know, quote unquote, it's playing for the enemy and stuff, but he is always going to hold a special place because he is from the era of football that I did enjoy. And it's the same for Dennis Wise. You know, in all fairness, like Dennis Wise was the sort of player that I would look to buy when I was playing things like Champ Manager or playing like one of the, the Premier League managers or whatever they, you know, the series of games that came out. And because I liked Dennis Wise, you know, he like the, the kind of joke about Dennis Wise was always like, you know, he's this short guy. He is, you know, he and he was, you know, quite short compared to a lot of other football players. But there was something about Dennis Wise that I always kind of like really liked. I mean, he began his career at Wimbledon and was actually part of the crazy gang who caused a bit of an upset in 1988 because the FA Cup final, it was Wimbledon versus Liverpool at Wembley, and Wimbledon won it 1-0. No one saw it coming. If anyone actually did put serious money on Wimbledon to win that, they'd have walked away from the bookies with a hefty chunk of change. So I found it kind of fascinating because John Barnes here is playing against a Wimbledon player who was part of the squad that upset his team five years previously. Minor spoilers, history repeats itself a bit next week. <laughs> yeah. So, John Barnes is playing Italy and Dennis Wise is playing Germany. The winner of this week's FIFA Soccer Challenge is going to come back next week to play Vinnie Jones in the final, where one of them will win the fabulous Games Master Golden Joystick. So we've got John Barnes playing as Italy and Dennis Wise playing as Germany. And we talked about this on last week's challenge as well, which is, this, it, it's not a passing game. Well, FIFA is a passing game, but our celebrities here are not playing a passing game. What they're playing is, you get the ball, you press C and you do a shot, and you try and aim it towards goal. And Dave Perry is on commentary being like, you've got to be more tactical than this. You can't just shoot from the halfway line. There's no way that you're going to be able to score from there. And John Barnes proves him wrong on several occasions because he hits the halfway line, shoots, and scores. Yeah, Dave even does kind of fess up, and he's like, what am I saying? Because, <laughs> boom, it sells it. This is basically the video game equivalent of table football. Yes. Oh, 100%, yeah. There are many ways to play FIFA. This is one of them. Is it the most enjoyable for like a decent length match? No, but this is what? A minute, a half, 45 seconds, a half, something, something yeah. crazy like that. It's edited, so it's difficult to be 100% sure. And there's no timer on screen either. That's what makes me believe this was very heavily edited because it's like, yeah, if we remove the timer, no worries. We don't need to fuss about it. But it's a lot of fun. Now, John, in the pre-match interview, said he'd never played the game before but his son had had a few tries, so he's aiming for a nil-nil draw. At the end of the first half, the score is 
one. It is, as Dave puts it, a goal feast because these two lads are just walloping it at the goal as often as they possibly can. And that results in quite a few goals. He gets another shot to stay on target during the second half. It goes to 4-1. Dennis does try and make a bit of a comeback, but despite having never played this game before, John's pretty handy as the keeper. And so that's it. The final whistle. Italy wins. And that means, Luke, it's Barnes versus Jones for the final next week. That's the dream final that you want here. Because you've got the nice guy versus the bad guy, but also two real personalities. Okay, okay. So, Dennis, 4-1. A bit of a hammering. What went wrong? The goalkeeper didn't know what he was doing, I think. Uh, Uh, He was all over the gaff. He was all over the shop, wasn't he? Always playing the goalkeeper. Is that the best thing to do, is it? I was a bit lucky, though. I had a few lucky shots. Well, it's a good result. 4-1. Must be well chuffed. Well, Angus, we're looking forward to the final now. Yes, that's right. You'll be playing Billy Jones in our final next week. All right. I look forward to that. Yes, I will wait. Poor old Dennis Wise blamed his keeper for for all the mistakes there in the post-match interview. And John just says he was lucky. And yeah, to agree, he was, but it didn't stop it being entertaining. There's a moment here when they're sort of talking about, you know, who's going to be in the final. And, you know, so you're looking forward to the final and, you know, going to be playing up against Vinnie Jones. And John Barnes, like his reaction to it sounds like he didn't know it was going to be Vinnie Jones in the final, which uh, I, I found quite interesting. But like you say, like this is the final that you kind of wanted it to be of Jones versus Barnes because they're both great personalities. They're both great characters. And you're right. It's nice versus nasty. Also, probably flashbacks to the 1988 FA Cup final. He's <laughs> like, oh, no. No, again. <laughs> Welcome to my secret bonus room. Who wants to be the first to power up their game-playing knowledge? Games master, on marketing machines for the Mega Drive. I feel the need, the need for speed. Can you help? Ah, I love a bit of speed myself. Now, there's a superb cheat on this game that will allow you to rocket away from the opposition. While playing, press stop to pause the game and type in the following code. Up, down, A, B, Left, right, C. Now, unpause the game, and you'll find your car is now operating in further. Start your engines. Cheers, Games Master. Enter the consultation zone, and our first kid wants micro machines to be faster. No, you don't. The game is very much fast enough as it is. The hint that he gives here, which is, you pause the game, up, down, A, B, left, right, C, puts you into turbo mode, and turbo mode looks unplayable. I mean, it looks unplayable. It is pretty much unplayable i did like the whole games master once again going oh i do like a bit of speed <laughs> it's like careful <laughs> i just want to imagine patrick moore down the club with the glow sticks it's an endearing mental image games master i'm running stimpy from snes the big beaver it keeps killing me i can't beat him what can i do it's very simple all you have to do to kill our beaver friend is to pick up the teeth that are located around his mouth and throw them at him when he's in rage. Repeat this process, and you'll soon get rid of him. Anyhow. Oh, thanks, Games Master. I did play Red and Stimpy on the snares. I did play um, Stimpy's Invention a lot on the Mega Drive, which I've made reference to on this podcast before, because I used the turbo buttons um, to get through one of the challenges when you're pedaling the bike. But what an era time for, for games. What an era time for animation. We've got Ren and Stimpy and a bloody love Ren and Stimpy. I mean, this game is based on a number of episodes within the show. Uh, the bit with the tooth beaver is uh, referencing Ren's toothache. But one of the things I loved about this, and it's more than Bart's Nightmare, more than a lot of the other games, this game looks like Ren and Stimpy. Yeah. The gross-out art style is still there, which is amazing because this is also a SNES game. Yeah. This is before the floodgates opened with, like, 
Mortal Kombat 2 and they went, okay, we'll, we'll allow non-family-friendly stuff because there's many ways I'd describe Ren and Stimpy. Family-friendly is not one of them. It is quite remarkable when I look back and think that, man, Ren and Stimpy used to air on BBC Two at half past six. The worst thing that happened to me with Ren and Stimpy is I think my mum came in one time when I was watching it and after that I just recorded it and watched it another time because I can't even remember which episode she came in during but it would have been one of the gross out moments yeah it's like you know Stimpy climbing inside of his own belly button or you know the the, the, the fart kid and, and things like that the game was not that well received it, it was to fans of the show it was fun but it lacked a password system and it lacked a save game system. And it wasn't the easiest game. It wasn't the longest game. It was quite a short game, but it wasn't the easiest game. And the only way I'd play it now would actually be with save states. Stimpy's invention is very similar to that. It's short, but it's also nails. Like I've, I've made reference to, you know, the, the one where you're like pedaling away from the dog catchers and you've also got to jump over the potholes. It's so hard if you don't have those turbo buttons. That's all I think for tonight. Oi, Games Master, what about me? Yes, what is it? Marisha is rustling up a little something for me. I can't keep her waiting. I keep losing all my shields on Donk on the Amiga. Do you have any cheats for it? Okay, try this. At the end of the level, when the klaxon sounds and the screen turns red, type in Able to Cheat. Now press function key one and your shield will be replenished. Thanks very much, Games Master. We talked a bit about shenanigans last week and we get a bit more this week and there's a bit more next week. If you're going to have the consultation zone, and yeah, it can be a bit of a pointless section, have fun with it. And that's yeah. what this is starting to do. But this kid is having difficulties with the game Donk. Yep, it's an Amiga game called Donk. Uh, when you reach the end of the level and the screen turns red, type in able to cheat, press F1, and your shields are replenished. I have not heard of Donk on the Amiga. Me neither. I had to look it up. It's a game featuring a duck called Donk. And... The best thing I can find out about it is that originally they were going to call it Dong. <laughs> but apparently the British developers did not want to cause offence as the word can mean penis. I didn't know that. That's, that's news to me, Luke. I've news, never, that's news to me. Never heard that. So they changed the name to Donk, but they changed it at such a late date that some demo versions distributed on Amiga cover discs still bore the name Dong. And an amazing comeback there was going to be a homebrew version ported to the Dreamcast in 2007 involving the original developers, but the project was never completed. It's almost like an Atari Jaguar port. Very, very sad news. Anyway, that is enough hints, tips and cheats. It's time for our final challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? The beat-em-up I've chosen sees the return of those old stars, the Ninja Turtles and the Abbotses, in the game... Tournament titles for the Super Nintendo. The winner of this head-to-head contest was the first to take two rounds of his opponent in a feast of fighting action. Special moves of him. Cowabunga, man. It's a game that I feel has featured a lot, uh, particularly in Series 3 and a lot in under-consultation in general. We're playing Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles Tournament Fighters, the one-on-one -on -one beat -em up It gets reviewed next week. 
I mean, I know why it's featured a lot in Under Consultation. It's because we both yeah. love the turtles. Well, yeah, it's probably that reason. You're absolutely right. I don't know if anyone picks up on that, but, you know, just to <laughs> peel back the curtain, we're both <laughs> turtle fans. <laughs> Uh, this is the SNES version of the game. Sunil is going to be up for the Git, and Assam is going to be up for the Wizards. Sunil playing as Leonardo, Assam as Shredder. Both of them are very confident going into this, but I feel like that Sunil is definitely the more confident of the two, which is very evident in the actual game that we're about to see. And damn right, I'm in his corner because I want the Gits to win. Just as a note on Games Master's introduction to this game, two things I like. One, he referred to them as Ninja Turtles. And two, who would have thought we'd have ever seen Patrick Moore say the words Cowabunga Man? <laughs> well, he gets to be a proper cool dude next week. Wears sunglasses and everything. But Sunil is Leo, Hassan is the Shredder, and the fight gets underway. Leo rushes Shredder and basically doesn't stand a chance. It's an almost perfect win. The characters in the game aren't too badly balanced, but Shredder can be a bit... OP. Yeah, of course. He's like Bison. But he can also make coleslaw. Despite that, it is still a very one-sided fight. Now, we talked last week about how we like it when a fight goes three rounds. This one doesn't. While round two is a bit more balanced, from Leo just batters the shit out of the Shredder, and it's all over. Man, that first movie would have been a lot more boring if Shredder had gone over that easily. Man, this is an absolute domination. Leon is not a happy man. There is the team captain. It's coming to you two. Come on, come on. Hassan, man, what went wrong? I've never seen that game before. You did quite well then, considering. Unlucky about that. So, yeah, you got your team through to the semi-finals, please? Yeah, for some. But, yeah. I mean, it's just that I was just too good at Street Fighter 2 and uh, the moves are too similar. Yeah, they're very uh, similar to moves. Yeah, well, so, yeah. there you have it. Like, it really is. Like, he knows about this game, and which, which I find very interesting when we get to the post-match interview, which is a really, really cool post-match interview that he gives he looks like he knows this game inside and out he's pulling off the special moves and everything shredder does not stand a chance in any of this it is all leo 100 of the time which is good for the git there was absolutely no chance in hell this was ever getting to three rounds yeah hassan's like i've never seen the game before and dexter say you know he didn't do bad considering he'd never seen the game before sunil is a smart guy because he's just like i'm going to street fighter the moves are exactly the same which they are. Yeah, as I said, like it's a really smart way to answer that question. It's a very honest answer as well, which is just like, yeah, I'm good at a, a game that's a bit similar. So I've kind of sort of took to this like a duck to water. And Leo, of all the characters, is the Ryu type character. Yeah. The quarter circle motion will do you well. That's basically it. Like if you just pick up the, any beast from up around this area, if you know how to do a quarter circle or a half circle or a back charge or a down charge, you could pretty much play any fighting game that's around at this time because they've all got that same basic style of gameplay we see another thing from last week that i like then i still like now we got some sportsmanship it's the shaking of hands all round. it's good times luke i i like that even though the kids can be a bit gobby they can still show some respect okay okay now next week we've got the final of our fifa soccer challenge with John Barnes and Vinnie Jones, no less. So you'll have to tune in to check that one out. Also, we'll have three more teams competing for a place in the Games Master Team Championship semi-finals. So come back to us next week for that one. So we'll see you then, I hope. Bye. And that's going to wrap us up for this episode of Games Master as the second heat in the furnace of uh, the team championships. Uh, and as I said, I really liked this episode more than the first one. Actually, you know, and I, I really, really dug this episode and I, I enjoyed this round of the team championships. All the challenges clicked. Uh, all the challenges just flowed together. The review section was 
was fun. Uh, Cybermorph was fun for possibly the wrong reasons. Shenanigans in the consultation zone, always good. Some some great play-by-play. Yes, they shouted over each other, but we had some fun moments from Dex. We had some fun facts from Dave. The easy mode Nancy boy thing, it made me chuckle. And what a celeb challenge. Also, what a final it leads up to. Barnes versus Jones. This episode just rocketed. It still feels rushed, and that's not something that's going to go away. In fact, next week, it gets even worse. Yeah. I'm kind of adjusting to the pace a bit. I'm enjoying it. I did enjoy this episode a lot more than last week. Part of me's thinking, okay, we're only a couple of episodes in, but is it going to be that bad? You know, I'm, I'm trying not to build my hope up too much. At the moment, at least, this is, it's different. It's not Games Master at its best, but it's fun. Yeah, I think the harshest thing I can say about this show is that it's almost a bit too manic. It's so rapid fire because they've got to get four challenges in and the review zone and the consultation zone. So like none of the games ever really feel like they've got time to breathe. But I would argue on this episode, it really felt like they did. It felt like a lot of time was given to the Mean Bean Machine challenge and to the Skyblades thing, probably because the Tournament Fighters uh, challenge goes so quick because it's so one-sided. They're able to give a bit more time in the edit to the other two challenges and the FIFA challenge. My grievances that I had last week as well with the scoring system are going to be present throughout uh, the team championships. I probably would also do away with the review zone and the consultation zone, especially get rid of the consultation zone and keep the review zone. But at the same time, do you know what? I've got very few things negative to say about this episode. I really had a fun time with this one. I don't, as you said, it's not Games Master at its best, but I do think it's a good episode of Games Master. What do you think in score wise? I'm going high 80s on this one. It's, it's, and I can't go into the 90s bracket for it because I, I think it's almost too fast paced for its own good. But I'm certainly going 87%. I'm close. I was going with the classic Doc Brown. It was 88. Nice. <laughs> I think in this run, we're about like one or 2% out from each other. So like, I think it's gonna be a really, really interesting run. As I said, like is, you know, is it going to be fun for the first five and then tiresome for the next 10? That's going to be the question, I guess. But that is going to do it for this episode of Under Consultation. Thank you all so much for listening. You all rule. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do on twitter.com forward slash under console pod. We're also on Instagram under dot console. And you can get in touch with us feedback at underconsultation.com. Or you can come and hang out with us and like-minded Under Consultation, Games Master, Gaming, Retro Gaming, all sorts of fans on the Under Consultation Discord. Recent discussion has been about Doctor Who, Godzilla, various video games, all sorts of stuff. The topics are wide-ranging. Details can be found in the show notes and on our social media. If you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash under console pod, where at the £5 level, you will get next week's episode one week early and ad free. And at the £10 level, you get something a little bit extra. Ash, what do they get? At the £10 level, they get a Patreon exclusive mug variant. In that mug, you will find sweeties, retro trading cards, stickers, badges, and £5 off the first under consultation t-shirt which can be bought along with other mugs, stickers and badges at underconsultation.com. And a shout out to those £10 backers, Adam, Adam, Cliff, Gordon, Jamie, Joe, Matt, Misha, Nick, Phil, Rich, Robert, Sean, Simon, William, Zach, Colin and David. Thank you all so, so much. And thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the show because we will see you in seven days time for heat three of the team championships until then take care everyone see ya
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.